Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Zena Hitz. Zena is tutor in the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. She teaches across the liberal arts, but her specialty is in ancient philosophy. In particular, she works on friendship, love, and the law in Plato and Aristotle. Her new book has just been published by Princeton University Press. Its title is Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. We live in a culture that tends to view thought with a degree of suspicion. Thinking is frequently associated with with a kind of uselessness or idleness, sometimes even laziness. These suspicions can be somewhat allayed when thinking can be directly tied to some kind of purpose or tangible result. Accordingly, we tend to conceptualize thinking of the useful sort in terms of learning, and we think of learning largely as a matter of acquiring skills that are marketable. However, when overtly attached to its products and outcomes, thinking and learning can become just another mode of commerce. They thus can become constrained and indeed corrupted by worldly ambitions. The idea that learning can be a mode of escape from those ambitions or a way of rising above them, and thus a kind of liberation from the world, seems to have been lost on us. However, in the book Lost in Thought, Zena Hitz provides a vision of how learning, often by way of solitary reflection on the deepest and largest things, is a characteristically human activity, an activity that's essential for a fulfilled life. So as usual, there's a lot to talk about. And we're going to begin as we usually do with our guest. Hi, Zena. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for prompting the conversation. I'm doing very well. Great, great, great. Um, so, you know, the New Books and Philosophy interviews typically begin with me um, asking the author to provide some biographical background to the book. And it's often characterized as, oh, before we begin talking about your book, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, but Lost in Thought, um, your new book, uh, begins with a really absorbing prologue that is largely autobiographical. So we've got the biographical, uh, biographical sort of background to the book uh, as part of the book. Um, so uh, let's start there. Um, the book is the product of and a further step in a pretty fascinating intellectual journey. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how washing dishes restored your intellectual life? <laughs> uh I was a, a childhood bookworm. Uh, my parents also are bookworms, not academics, just ordinary people, but uh, interested in books and ideas. Uh, so I grew up with a kind uh, natural intellectual interest, I would say. 
And that was really um, fermented in me by my undergraduate experience at St. John's, where I teach now, uh, which values a amateur approach to learning in the sense of learning because you love it uh, and learning that's directed at fundamental questions about human life, uh, the nature of morality, the nature of politics, the nature of the universe uh, or the natural world, whether or not there's a God, etc. So fundamental questions that I think every human being uh, tries to get at. And also, of course, it's a great books program so that it, we undertake these inquiries through uh, big, long, difficult books. Uh, so I uh, finished St. John's. I went to grad school for classical philosophy and uh, through some good luck, ended up in very elite programs uh, where I, uh, I'm very grateful. I learned my field to a, a very high degree of specialization, and I got a lot from doing that. I learned a lot that way. I also, however, was inducted into uh, the world of elite academic culture, which is extremely competitive, extremely status-driven, uh, extremely gossipy, uh, centered around the pronouncement of judgment, uh, and so I also became trained in that that style of of uh, living one's life that is competitively in terms of status uh, anxiously because of course your status depends on others uh, hmm. you're not totally it's not totally in your control a good Aristotelian uh, observation I, by the way <laughs> <laughs> I spent a long time with Aristotle like, you right. know he, he comes in and he doesn't leave. Uh, then uh, I, I I followed the track that I was meant to be on. I applied for teaching jobs. Uh, uh, I started teaching philosophy uh, at good public universities. And at first, I loved it. Um, I loved doing research. Uh, I loved the teaching. And then something started to wear me down. Uh, two things, I'd say. One was keeping my life centered on research, which is the practice of a research academic, which is the, the highest pre prestige tier of American academia is research academia. And putting research first uh, didn't really work for me. Research didn't feel meaningful or important enough. The stuff I was writing I, was very interesting to me, but it was for a very small audience and its significance was not obvious. Its grand significance was not obvious. So that was one difficulty, was that I think it wasn't right for me to put research at the center. The second difficulty was the, I became increasingly frustrated with uh, contemporary teaching circumstances where you normally are teaching to a relatively large classroom that is even a classroom of 25 or 30, which is a small classroom by contemporary standards. That's already a classroom where it's difficult to have a single conversation. And of course, if you've got 60, 70, 80, 150, and so on, the whole nature of your class has to change and you have to think about how to uh, get the material into digestible form for a lecture and how to get design assignments in such a way that they, they can be easily evaluated so that when you're grading 60 or 70 exams or 60 or 70 papers, you can get through them without uh, uh, 
you know, in, in only say 40 hours rather than <laughs> several weeks. So I, I, I didn't feel myself in all of that to be passing on to my students the habits of mind that I had learned myself as an undergraduate. And there was learning that happened in every classroom. Every classroom I had had students who wanted to learn, who loved learning. So I don't want to be too severe. Uh, but I also think that the whole uh, system, which is very ordinary in higher education, nothing unusual about it, um, except that maybe my schools were a bit better in certain ways than, you know, they got good students and there was support from the administration and so on. Uh, it, it, it wasn't the, the kind of teaching and learning that, that made sense to me to do. I was really just uh, exchanging grades for, uh, you know, memorized uh, chunks, uh, bullet points of knowledge. So uh, I, I couldn't cope with that. So I eventually uh, quit the profession. I, I moved to a religious community in rural Canada and I spent three years total, uh, really without doing any professional intellectual work at all. I read uh, really good nonfiction and some really good novels, so occasional magazine article, uh, but I didn't lead an intellectual life in any ordinary sense. It was being in that community where I was really challenged to be a human being myself, a, a, not an academic, but a, a human being. <laughs> and... Um, also to live closely with ordinary people, people from all walks of life, and trying to connect with them forced me to think about why intellectual activity, why reading and studying really matters, not just for professionals, but for ordinary people. I was persuaded that it really does. I, I knew in the community many very curious people who were just dying to know things uh, and often were held back, not so much by interest, uh, as by um, a sense that somehow it wasn't appropriate for an ordinary person to undertake serious learning and studying. So anyway, that all haunted me. And I, uh, when I uh, decided to leave the community and come back to St. John's, uh, I wanted to uh, find a way to lead an intellectual life and to teach about the intellectual life that was open to that uh, that ordinary human impulse, that ordinary human desire to understand and to examine fundamental questions. And so it was really that thinking and that experience, both of uh, natural interest, then um, uh, professional interest, then disillusionment, and then a kind of uh, recovery through living a pretty ordinary life that seemed to me this uh, the way to frame the way of the, the thinking that I present in the book. It's, it's the origins in my life of, it's how I got to uh, this particular set of uh, ideas and images and, and ways of thinking about intellectual life. Excellent. So can you, can I ask a question about the book's title then? Um, so um, as I was finishing the book, um, remember the title is Lost in Thought the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. Um, and I'm not going to ask you about the pleasures part because <laughs> um, there's a lot in the book about um, uh, how to understand pleasure. Um, but uh, I want to just, with the, cent with the main title of the book, um, 
and just even just now as you were recounting the the journey towards uh towards writing it um it seems like the book could have been titled finding one oneself in thought uh or something like that um your overall prescription has it that um we've lost something in adopting a conception of learning that's overly instrumentalized um so can you tell us about the the lost in thought title sure I begin the book with uh, a part past my autobiography, past a philosophical introduction. It's, it's a book with a long beginning, uh, but I the center of the book I think is a set of images of intellectual life from film, from history, from fiction, um, and one of those images is Socrates, uh, who. Uh, in the story told in Plato's Symposium, he he's on his way to a dinner party, a very kind of high-end dinner party at Agathon, the hot new playwright's place. He gets all dressed up, very unusual for Socrates, just kind of a right. scrappy guy. And then takes he, a bath. He takes, he takes a bath for <laughs> once. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's he travels, he takes a friend. And then he stops at the, in the stairwell, in the doorway, and um, just falls into thinking, forgets where he is, apparently, and, and stays there for some time. The, the guests notice that he hasn't come into the room. His poor friend, who hasn't been invited, has to go in by himself. So he's uh, lost in thought at that moment. Uh, and that, that, that image is one of being having an inner life. So Socrates at that moment is, is absorbed in something that's not his surroundings. It's not the, the fancy high end party he's about to go to. It's not what speeches he about to give. It's something that's, <clears throat> that's inward. Um, and he's uh, with that inwardness is something withdrawn from uh, the world in some sense. Uh, so it, it's a, a sign of detachment and absorption. And yet in the midst of activity, in the midst of excitement, in the midst of things that are really uh, to ordinary people quite interesting. So that's where the, that's where the, the title comes from, is from that scene of Socrates. Uh, and it, it's meant to, uh, it's meant to echo throughout the book in other stories of human beings in different parts of history, uh, different times and places, um, as I say, in fiction or in film, who uh, I sometimes call it the hidden life of learning, the kind of learning that they live. They, um, they, their learning is not about impressing people. It's not about making an impact. It's not about advancing themselves. It has no visible results. We have no idea, for instance, what was Socrates thinking about when he's sitting in the stairwell? No idea. Better to him, I suppose, uh, but we don't know what it was. So I, 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 I try to, I try myself and I try to spur my readers to reflect on how much real serious thinking goes on in hidden ways, in hidden places, and how precious that is, how important, and how it really illustrates something central about why learning matters. 
Well, that's fabulous. Um, and um, I guess that um, uh, a lot of the the characters, and again, some of them are um, uh, drawn from fiction uh, novels, and others are drawn from films. Um, I guess that part of uh, the uh, part of your claim is that um, in these hidden moments or in these hidden um, engagements or activities, um, uh, that's where we sort of come to terms with ourselves or find ourselves. Is that right? I think that's right. Uh, it, it, I can think of it in a couple of different ways, and I, 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 I use different language in different contexts. One way of thinking about it is uh, it's – it's hidden from um, external standards, external judgments. Um, so it's uh, one finds oneself because um, one tends to lose oneself, ironically enough, <laughs> in what's outside, in what other people think, in what's expected. And sometimes our motivation to do that comes from us. So it's, we want to throw ourselves into various distractions uh, or we're workaholics. That's my particular disease. I'm a workaholic. I throw myself into work. Anything, um, anything is better than facing uh, whatever my particular inner emptiness is at the time. Um, Or we also don't want uh, to uh, face the awkwardness and the difficulty and the, the humbleness of who we are um, in ourselves, by ourselves. So it is a, a way of finding oneself. And there, there are also some beautiful examples of that. Uh, my, my favorite, I suppose, at the moment is um, Malcolm X, uh, who went to prison as a young man for theft um, you know, had grown up in pretty extraordinarily um, difficult circumstances. His father was murdered uh, by the KKK. His his family's broken up by the welfare office. He's treated with great prejudice in school. Uh, so he, um, you know, he 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 gets to prison and meets another prisoner who seems to have something that he doesn't. That is, this guy has read a lot and thinks a lot and can hold forth on various topics. So Malcolm decides to read the whole prison library, more or less. He reads the great books. He reads about architecture. He reads about African history. He reads about the history of colonialism. And he becomes uh, a different person uh, by his own description. He becomes um, impassioned, disciplined, focused and really dedicated to pursuing uh, justice for for uh, the black American community and uh, that he's a great example for me because he's he's an activist if 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 no one ever was I mean very much an active guy but that activism was rooted in uh, a long period of inwardness of study and reflection. And I, I believe that that nourished him throughout his life, and it, it spurred him, for instance, to uh, have a second conversion towards the end of his life, uh, where he turned away from a particular uh, strand of activism that he was involved in and moved towards another one. Uh, so I think it, it's, 
it's a way of discovering oneself and also a way of maintaining oneself, of reminding oneself of who one is. Uh, so the inner life, on my view, is is crucially important, both for its own sake, really, really for its own sake, just to be a human being, but also truthfully for anyone who wants to be active in the world or involved in the world. Great, great. So to sort of segue into that, so the, the book is a is a kind of defense um, of the intrinsic value of learning, of, of, of um, you know, of learning for its own sake. Um, part of your account of this value has to do with, um, as you put it, uh, the human need to escape from the world. Um, and you present a few different modes um, of achieving well, what you call refuge, um, uh, which turn out to be also ways of securing one's dignity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, those different ways of um, uh, escaping from the world by means of learning? Uh, so, uh, I don't, I try to use the word refuge rather than the world word escape for the following reason. Good. Uh, I try in the book, it's difficult to do, but I do try. I don't know if I succeed, but I try to make a distinction between, uh, an escape, which I would think would be a form of distraction versus a refuge, which I think of as being, uh, a way of getting um, past what's superficial and into something which is deeper, more permanent, more rich, more powerful, more meaningful. Uh, so, um, the, the, you know, the, the being in the world, I think, in either case is difficult. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I need to tell your listeners why that might be true. There's all kinds of reasons why it's difficult, and there's all kinds of reasons why we might be driven either right. to distraction, say, for instance, we're isolated in quarantine, or say that we're out of work, or say that um, we're uh, at home uh, homeschooling our kids while working full-time, all using the same computer. I mean, whatever you want to say. Uh, you, you, we 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 can't uh, live in in the here and now uh, every second. So we either distract ourselves. We go to uh, video games or social media or pornography or um, any other kind of Netflix or whatever other kind of thing is just gonna just gonna take our senses out of what's in front of us. And I'm not a, I'm not a, a, against all those things in principle, but I, I think that they they're not ultimately uh, fulfilling and satisfying. Whereas there are activities, I'd call them in a traditional sense leisure activities, in the sense that they're non-instrumental activities. They're they're things we do for their own sake, and uh, which in which our life culminates in some way. Those activities are, for instance. Uh, uh, creative activity, art, music, uh, being in nature, being with one's family in a, a leisurely fashion where you're just enjoying one another. Um, but key, and I think those, that set of activities is, is studying and thinking and reflecting, um, either with books or without. Uh, so when, we, when we're thinking or studying or reflecting or contemplating, what we're doing matters um, all on its own. We're 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 being human. We can we can think of this as being, uh, in some way, what our life is about. 
Um, we don't need anything further beyond it in the moment. And uh, without, uh, it, it's also a, a limitless source of growth. So we grow from our intellectual endeavors, uh, however humble. And we grow in a way, I think, uh, in a way that's more substantive, perhaps, even than those other leisure activities. So we, we're, uh, the intellectual life stretches us, it pushes us, and it changes us. And uh, in ways that are rich and deep and uh, wholesome, usually. Uh, and that's why I think it's, um, it has this intrinsic value. It's, it's because of um, that need to find one's, find one's dignity, find one's peace, find activities which are really worth doing in and of themselves. Uh, that's my thinking about why, why uh, learning matters for its own sake. Great. And so one way in which um, uh, learning uh, of that kind can uh, be pursued uh, is by being a bookworm. Um, and uh, But there are others, right? So one can be a bookworm. Oh, in terms of types of intellectual life, yeah. one, one yeah. can be a bookworm. One can be a uh, amateur botanist. Uh, look at the plants in your garden or in your surrounding area. Bird watcher. Um, one could be a mathematician. That is, one can do math problems for the fun of it in one's head or on paper or what have you. Uh, one could just reflect and think about the people one knows. That's, that's in fact, one of my all-time favorite modes of, of reflection or, or thinking. Just to think about human beings, stories you've heard about them, people that you know. And try to try to try to get at what makes them tick. Uh, so people watchers also they're they're great practitioners of this type of of uh, thinking. So there's a there's a wide variety of ways that virtually everyone engages with in terms of thinking and reflection. It's it's something that uh, academics do in a at a professional level in some way or other. But it's not limited to academics, and I think it's it's dangerous to think that it can be. It's it's basically in all kinds of places and can be found in all kinds of ways. Right, and so you're you're um, early in the book, um, in the introduction, uh, you're keen to point out that although learning for its own sake is a leisure activity, um, it's part of the the way in which um, our understanding of, of learning has been um, corrupted or sullied in some way by the world of commerce, particularly, that um, we think that because it requires leisure that it's elitist. Is that right? That's right. So one thought is, um, oh, intellectual work, studying and thinking, that's for people who, ha if you, especially if you use the word leisure, which has a certain uh, historical right. and economic set of uh, baggage, political set of baggage with it. You know, it's the the gentleman aristocrat farmer who, like Thomas Jefferson, who right. you know has slaves to do his labor, and then he sits back and you know translates Greek into Latin and back again, and you know builds clocks and <laughs> whatever right. else, you know dissects animals. Uh, so, I. Uh, I, I think that leisure in the sense that matters that I'm interested in is perfectly compatible with 
uh, being a working person. So you can you can work, you can have a family, you can be busy, and still carve out leisure uh, in which you can pursue these activities. You're studying and you're thinking and you're reflecting. And uh, it's still going to be true that your life in some way can culminate in these moments. Uh, it can be a place where we put things together or where we take things apart or both. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I, some, for me sometimes, uh, you know, the, the irony of my life is that I, I talk about leisure all the time and uh, I'm an extremely busy workaholic. Uh, but I, I do... Um, I mean, it's my it's my workaholic practice to talk about leisure and contemplation and the importance <laughs> of slowing down. Uh, I do have always, for some reason, like to look at the sky in little transitional moments. So, you know, I leave my house, I get in the car, and I look up, and something in that moment is contemplative. It's reflective. It's a reminder um, of that I'm a part of uh, something that's grander than myself, uh, that there's something beyond this particular task I'm undertaking that's bigger than that. And even those little moments, I think, those little moments of contact can be ways of reminding oneself that one is a, a full human being with dignity and not just not just a sort of outcomes machine, which I think the way a lot of us feel. Right, right. So as you see it, um, Thought and learning are ways of um, sort of reconnecting with or discovering or affirming one's dignity. Um, so you argue that the the, the needed refuge um, is actually an internal operation. Um, it's a turning within um, so that we can reflect on the ways in which we have um, – uh, gotten caught up with or internalized or um, accepted uh, for ourselves um, a, a series of what might be characterized as sort of external or um, uh, non-intrinsic drives and impulses uh, from the world. Um, and uh, in this way, you see learning uh, for and, and taking up the, uh, learning for its own sake as a kind of redemption. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that sort of the sort of internalizing the the um, um, the drives uh, and the priorities uh, of the world? Right. So uh, it's I, it, it's one of the feature of working with images that you can uh, talk this way. So. One might think that the inner world or a life that's withdrawn from the world, it has certain physical characteristics. That is, say there's a little corner of the house where you retreat to read your books or a little study where you work or one thinks about a, a, the cell of a monk or a nun. It's these little places that are withdrawn, literally withdrawn from the world. Uh, and I think those are good and useful, but the real uh, work that intellectual life can help us with is having within oneself a refuge and so uh, transforming the way that we interact with and view the outside world. So let's, if we go back to Malcolm X for a second, mm -hmm. uh, the, the world in which he goes to prison in the 1930s and the world in which he comes out in the 1940s, I might be getting the decades wrong. There might be forties and fifties, but he, um, uh, he, you know, it's he still lives in uh, a country which views African Americans uh, 
very in a extremely disparaging way. They're subject to violence, uh, lynching. They are subject to prejudice. They live in segregation in the South. Uh, they're the victims of police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but whereas I think before his experience, his conversion, his transformation in prison, before that he might have been inclined to view himself in light how others see him. That mm. is, he might have been inclined to take those judgments seriously. And that's the that's the danger of the world to one's dignity that I don't I don't think I've made clear quite yet in this particular conversation. The danger is that one uh, diminishes oneself, one sees one's value in terms that the terms that the world give you. And that can be bad if, of course, if you're at the, the bottom of the social barrel, if you're, you're someone who is denied basic respect by the community. It's also true if you're successful. So if you're, you know, riding high on Wall Street and uh, everyone thinks you're the greatest, You've also put your value in those circumstances, in uh, in your money, in the suits you're wearing, in your haircuts, in you know having the the best looking boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, driving the nicest car, etc. Those are not the things in which your dignity lies. So the the social world contains within it all of these diminishing features that we need to recover our dignity from. And once we have found it. Uh, not that it's necessarily a once and for all sort of a thing. It may be hard work. It may take a long time. One may gain it and lose it. But that's something which can change the way that you view uh, the judgments of society. It can give you a perspective from which those judgments are false or uh, even meaningless so uh, that's, I think, an extremely valuable thing for a for a person to have. That is some perspective on their own value, which is not conditioned by what happens to them. I'll just say, as an aside, on that point, that you know we we talk a lot about learning for success, education for success, education for achievement, education for rising. Uh, and that's all well and good. There's nothing wrong with achievement. There's nothing wrong with rising. Nothing wrong with success. Uh, but we also need to recognize the fact that what happens to us is not entirely under our control. Uh, that's obvious to people who uh, live as victims of, of prejudice or uh, social contempt of one kind or another. But it's true for all of us that we can achieve something, supposedly through education, and then lose it the next day on a dime. We need to have resources which we carry with us uh, that are a part of who we are so that we can be resilient and and find our lives uh, no matter where we are or what happens to us. Good. So um, just to pick up on that, uh, I take it that also part of the account is that these, uh, the purposes and um, objectives and aims and ends that are um, ascribed uh, from sources outside of ourselves um, that are then um, that were then incentivized uh, to internalize and make our own. Um, I take it that your account isn't simply that there's um, something lamentable about um, you know um, having one's uh, 
sense of oneself sort of uh, be entirely the product of uh, some external sources. Um, but also that um, there's a kind of um, uh, there's a kind of emptiness uh, to those ascriptions that they're that the 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 drives and the values and the purposes that are imposed and that we are encouraged to internalize um, have a character that renders um, a life spent in pursuing or realizing those goals um, uh, vapid, right? Right. So, you know, I, I think I want to put it this way. Uh, I, as you might have been able to tell already, or even just from reading the book, I, I tend to shift the way I talk about things to try to get another angle of them. And that means sometimes I risk inconsistency, but at least I, I help, I hope people who are listening or reading think about what's going on. So I, here's the thing. So, so think about the pursuit of power and status. So uh, set money aside for the time being, which might be a means to either of those things. So my thought is that if you define your life by your success on those terms, how much status have you gotten? How much power have you gotten? Uh, it will, your life will be empty uh, and it will be empty because those, those things that you're seeking are, are capricious on the one hand. They depend on others. They tend to be um, given or taken away in a way that's a bit arbitrary. Uh, so, you know, you can be uh, top of the heap today and bottom of the heap tomorrow. And it's not because of the merits of you or your work, but just because that's the way things go. Uh, and there's something in us, I think, that... Uh, is not satisfied by something which is that contingent, that dependent on others, and that really thin. It's a it's a thin thing. Uh, approval of other, the approval of others, and and status and power. Now, so the the difficulty is living by those things. Now, it's it's not as if everyone has to take relatively privileged people like ourselves who have some power and some status. Um, it's not as if everyone has to sacrifice all of that and go and live lives of poverty or, or wander the Russian steppes like pilgrims, as the ancient Orthodox uh, pilgrims used to do, or maybe still do. I hope they do. I think that that's good. I mean, I think there are lives of renunciation that are, are beautiful, uh, that bear witness to the kinds of truths I'm talking about. Uh, that certain people are called to do. But the point is, uh, ultimately, power and status are tools. They are means to an end. They are not ways of organizing one's life. So uh, take, for instance, now I'm now an, an author. <laughs> uh, it's a new feeling for me. It's only about the past six months. I suddenly have a different status in the world and people treat me differently. Now, uh, and I I enjoy that. I, I've I've always been an ambitious person who liked people's approval, like most of us. But it's also useful because I I have this cause I've devoted myself to, namely the promotion of a certain kind of learning. So I can use this status I have to promote something that I care about, that matters, uh, that helps others, that serves the community in some way. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. 
And then if I lose the status for whatever reason, I can still do that work in whatever way it befits my circumstances. But the, the point is to really to have the goods of one's life in, a, in the right order where um, the things which uh, really are just means to an end, money, status, power, they're just means. They're only valuable because of how they're used. Those need to be kept in the right perspective and not pursued uh, simply for their own sake. Here's another example. Uh, Twitter, okay, or other social media uh, platforms, uh, they're great as tools. So uh, I um, have connected with a number of people who are also interested in liberal learning and learning for its own sake, both students and, and fellow teachers. Uh, and that's been great. Uh, and uh, you can learn about things that you wanted to know about. You can connect with like-minded people. But of course, we also know it can take on the aspect of something we pursue for its own sake. So we can spend <laughs> hours upon hours just uh, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Is there something interesting here? Is there something interesting here? <laughs> and we all know, everyone who's done that, which is most of us, I think, we all know that that's, that makes you feel dead inside and empty because you're 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 using something which is really just a means to something else as if it were something that could satisfy you. And uh, so it's, it's trying to keep the right order and, and to keep parts of life that matter most at the fore. Right. Um, could you, in this connection, um, I, I, I found the discussion um, about the virtue of, seriousness um really compelling uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh what you call the virtue of seriousness um which um i i take it is meant to convey that um uh the 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 life of the the, the flourishing life of the the human mind has to um be motivated or fixed on something other than entertainment so I um, think I think that's sorry. Did you have another sentence? I no, no, no. I, I, I was I, I was going to ask you about a uh, about the Greek word spudaios, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it, you know uh, Aristotle sometimes talks about people being serious, uh, and um, so uh, but the, you know the, I'm just curious. Can you elaborate a little bit on the virtue? Sure. Uh, so I actually was not thinking about spudaios when I wrote about oh. seriousness. I was thinking about uh, the Latin word that's in Augustine that's that's mm -hmm. contrasted with uh, curiosis or curiositas, mm -hmm. which I, I call the the love of spectacles in the book. Right. Uh, it's it's seeking out uh, stimulation or entertainment for its own sake. Uh, without regard to its contents. So the, the, it's the word studiosis, uh, which gets later turned into the virtue studiositas. And I didn't like studiousness, the right. literal translation, because that sounds uh, boring and um, like someone who's who's a rule follower, you know, so someone who's studious, they do all their homework, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I didn't think that was quite right. So I was... I was using the virtue of seriousness to explain there's really two different phenomena I'm trying to explain, which is um, makes it a bit complicated. One phenomenon I'm trying to explain is the uh, the reason why 
a certain type of person, and the example in the book is Dorothy Day, she read a lot um, and she took the books very seriously. That is, she read for the sake of life, of living, of learning how to live, rather than as a source of distraction or entertainment. Uh, the books she read, uh, some of them were really good and some of them weren't that great. Okay, so Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, it's not that great. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting, it's gripping, it's sure. historically important, uh, but it's it's a bit uh, lurid, uh, sensationalist, and so on. But because she was a serious person, because she was driven for uh, uh, to, for more, for to live in a way that was more deep, more profound, more in touch with reality. Uh, she wanted to be to to love more, to know more. So she had this drive within her that meant that whatever she read, she would chew it up and turn it into uh, something else. So that was one phenomenon I was trying to explain why it might not depend. Uh, uh, living a life of learning might not depend on. Uh, reading the most high-end materials or absorbing the most high-end content so long as one was really determined to um, make one's life out of what one encountered and really take what was good in it. So that was one thing I was trying to explain. The other thing I was trying to explain was um, this uh, comes from back in Augustine. Uh, So curiositas or the love of spectacle uh, it's this part of us which um, wants to just engage the surface of things. So we, we just want to, uh, you know, the, the best example I think for us is, you know, you, you drive past a car accident and you, you just want to look. Why do you want to look? You're not going to learn anything. Uh, you know what car accidents are. You know what they do to people. Uh, and it doesn't matter how many times you look or how many car accidents you see, you're still going to want to keep looking. There's a way in which you just want that that shock of experience to to shake your senses. Um, watching gladiator matches—that's Augustine's example—or right. watching spiders kill flies, uh, or social media. I think is a prime example. You know, you you uh, people love bad news. It's so weird. Uh, <laughs> the most outrageous, horrible thing will be what everyone just eats up. Um, and we even have a term for it, right? Doom scrolling. <laughs> Doom scrolling, exactly. <laughs> and you, you don't want to read. You don't. You don't want to read the little correction that comes out the next day that tells you that in fact it was much more nuanced and that not quite as bad as you thought it was. You, you're not interested in that. You want that no. feeling of outrage, <laughs> that feeling of horror. So, um, I wanted to explain what the what the good version of that was. That that's what's the way of using our senses, learn using what we read or experience for our own good. Uh, I, 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 I thought that seriousness might be a, a, a way of thinking about that would be helpful. That is, we can, um, you know, it, it's, you can even, uh, the same activity can become serious if one has that in one's heart. So one can, um, scroll through Twitter, uh, praying fervently for every lost soul that one comes across. <laughs> that would be a serious approach to Twitter. It would be difficult, but it would be serious. Or uh, likewise, um, you know, one could take a serious interest in uh, in even the car accidents on the road or in gladiator matches. 
uh, or in uh, lurid, descri- maybe a good example would be, uh, you know, reading slave narratives, which are often full of lurid descriptions, but which also uh, reveal a, a sort of horror that in our history that we hide from mm-hmm. and that uh, we don't we don't much want to think about and which shows us something about what's what's in uh, an American heart, what's in a human heart, what's in the hearts of the people that we know. So it's it's a it's a I think it might not be a very refined tool, but it's a tool for trying to understand what good functioning in the in the realm of the intellect looks like. Great, great. So you've been very generous with your time. I want to make sure that we um, get to talk about uh, the third chapter, where there's a lot goes on in the third chapter. Um, so the the third chapter um, explores the ways in which. Um, Learning can be corrupted uh, not by money and not, not not by status, but by politics, um, or the the it can be corrupted by the need for thought to be applicable uh, in current struggles uh, for things like uh, justice. Um, now, uh, there's a lot to say, <laughs> um, but uh, can, can you can you walk us through your thoughts there? Sure. My thinking on this has developed in a certain way. So the main thing I was concerned about, and I still am concerned about, is that the love of justice, the search for justice, uh, can um, corrupt learning in a certain way. Now, that's not because the love of justice or the search for justice isn't important. It's crucially important. But it is something different than uh, learning for its own sake, so it uh, it can have the effect, if one mixes them up in the wrong way, of turning learning as something driven by an agenda. Uh, so that is, there's some political conclusion, there's some political outcome that's, uh, that's turning the wheels on the thinking machinery. And that's an important type of thinking to do if you're an advocate, if you're working in politics, if you're an activist, or if you're uh, what have you. But it's a very bad way to learn because learning as such needs to be open-ended. It needs to uh, have its conclusions be held lightly. And it, it, it needs to kind of follow its own logic. Uh, and it um, that's why I think authentic learning, learning for its own sake, is often a bit painful because it often happens that we come up against some reality that conflicts with an agenda. It could be a political agenda, it could be a personal agenda, it could be just something you thought you were right about. Uh, so something in your vanity. But you you have to uh, you you have to be willing to let those things go. And if 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 your learning is too agenda driven, and this happens incidentally on the right as well as on the left, it's this is not a partisan point. Hmm. Uh, then you're you're not really thinking openly and clearly. So that's that's the one thing I want to say. The second thing, which is more uh, a recent development, which I think doesn't turn up in the the book as much as I would like it to now. I do think that uh, there's a type of uh, freedom, individual freedom, that's cultivated by learning for its own sake. Uh, it's um, it's a way of thinking for oneself. Uh, thinking independently, thinking uh, reflectively about whatever kinds of information or ideas or thoughts that you're receiving from the outside world. And it's, uh, it's very 
important politically <laughs> that this type of learning be kept alive, not for any partisan purpose, but for uh, egalitarianism, for um, a kind of political community that's based on accountability and uh, um, some kind of democratic control, uh, some kind of rule of law. Uh, what you need, you need citizens who know how to make their own judgments and are in trust and trust themselves and trust one another to to come to conclusions. So that's something which I, I, I it's a bit more hackneyed, which maybe just as well why I didn't find it in the book. But I, I have come to think as time has gone on that it's an argument that is it's worth remembering. That is. Uh, partisan politics, I think, is needs to be kept separate from thinking, but but thinking really is crucial for our the flourishing of our communities, politically speaking and otherwise. Well, that seems right. Um, and and are you concerned about um, particularly um, uh, the ways in which um, politics has been? Um, I don't want to even say introduced because that's not the right that's not the right way to characterize it. But um, the ways in which, in, in uh, particularly perhaps in college teaching, it's become um, more common to think that um, thinking is um, and learning uh, are um, intrinsically political in a way that. Um, aligns them with uh, partisan uh, objectives and ideals? Well, I I think that I, I want to make a distinction, which may be hard to make in practice, but I think it can be made in principle. There's quite a lot of interesting thinking, interesting in and of itself, <laughs> <laughs> about how uh, thinking is political. And it, it's, you know, it, it's at least as old as Rousseau, and it extends into the 19th and 20th century. It's a, it's a so it's a it's a pretty wide stream of European thinking about what thinking is and how it works. It works politically, and I I don't want to say uh, thinking along these lines doesn't belong in the university. Of course it does. Where else where else would it belong? It's important to reflect on these questions. Uh, I think the kind of thing I'm concerned about, honestly, is that. Uh, the, it's the kind of political thinking about academia. It happens in the classroom. It happens outside the classroom that stems from an anxiety about the worth of what we're doing. So mm. there's a there's a mistrust of academic work. There's a mistrust of teaching. There's a thought that, say, um, puzzling through some argument or memorizing an old poem is somehow not not really useful. And in a in a world so riven with injustice, we have got to use every minute and every time and every fiber of our being to 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 make a difference, to promote outcomes. It's that kind of thing that I'm much more concerned about. It's not a particular mode of thinking um, that I think doesn't belong in universities among the classroom. As far as yeah, you know, yeah, does does thinking depend on your political circumstances? It's more that's. Uh, uh, almost a spiritual problem where people don't think that uh, just thinking is worth doing and they don't believe that it will have, they don't trust their students or they don't trust themselves to teach things in an open-ended way because they're fearful that the outcomes won't be quite what they want them to be. 
And I think that's that's quite dangerous for uh, just the thing I'm talking about is the cultivation of real egalitarianism, where we as a community of uh, somewhat equal citizens get together and make decisions for ourselves. You can't do that if you're if you're digesting all of your teaching for people who you think can't make decisions for themselves and need to be told exactly how to interpret it. So it's it's much more the latter that I'm that I'm worried about. Yeah, than right, the, right. Than the so, former. Uh, right. So uh, would, would would this be fair? The the concern is with a um, a kind of um, making political of learning that that makes learning um, uh, again a, a mode of commerce. It's just now that the currency is politics. Something I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's yeah. helpful. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah. What what's this going to do for for me or for you? Well, it's going to bring more activists on the street for this cause. It's going to bring more votes for this question. It's going to pour more research into this cause that I I think wants to be researched. It's uh, yeah. You're not just sitting back and letting the ideas fall take you wherever they're going to take you. Uh, that end, you know, you, I, I suppose I do, th- maybe I do, maybe I do think this, I do think the, the question of how our, our political situation, our social situation influences our thinking and whether it, whether there is such a thinking, such a thing as thinking, which is independent of our, uh, political context or our circumstances. I think that has to be an open, that's a big question. It's a question. Uh, it's not a conclusion and mm-hmm. we need to keep revisiting it. And uh, keep examining it, uh, even if it's even if it's true, because we need to to take it in for ourselves and see what nuances might be there that we might not have seen before. Well, that's um, uh, that's a good note to end on with a, a, an election coming up. Um, Zena, uh, it's been really great to to talk to you. Um, thanks for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you, Bob. Um, And thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, for our discussion of Zena Hitz's new book, uh, which is published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Zena's book is titled Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Thank you for listening and bye for now.